0: Hello and welcome back to We Not Be, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. Dan Hammond, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Actually, very doing very well. We, we, uh, you know, are here in sunny Britain. We, it's been raining really for the whole of the summer, but uh, it's been a bit. I feel we've all been damp for about three weeks now. But other than that, you know, other than talking about the weather, we're fine, thank you very much. How are you doing? How's your household? Well, we're good because it, we are. We, we've got a roaring fire because, of course, it's winter
1: down here and a little chilly in the valley. But we are hot watching the World Cup and I can't tell you how cool it is that my eight year old son, who is besotted with the World Cup, is watching females play as his first major tournament that he's watching. Like how cool is that? It's like one of those moments you think, Oh, we have made some progression and he yeah, he doesn't even know that it's a thing. Well, it wasn't a thing. I mean it's just it just is, and that's it's so cool.
0: It is. It. it it's. Yeah, I know. We've bemoaned a lot of things on this on this show, even about things that aren't going so well. But wow, that has really transformed itself, hasn't it? And it's just slow. Old. There's some way to go, but people are genuinely. Paying attention and interest, and of course, importantly, it's getting some money now, which is uh, so it'll just start rolling. But that is wonderful about um, the 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 lad seeing his first big tournament. He is, its, he's uh, seeing, and
1: um, yeah, and so he doesn't seem to quite get the subtleties of the offside trap as I tried to explain that little rule to him. But um, you know, I was just showing <laughs> my expertise
0: in. Yeah, you know. very good, very good. Well, it's it's close to my heart, of course, because my daughter um, played football and qualified as a referee so as we've talked about a few times so it's it's very close to my heart and i love seeing the women play and i don't know if anyone's seen this but um the french did a brilliant job of an advert for les bleus um the french team and they they it's probably a bit of a spoiler, but they, they replaced women's heads with men's heads. So it looked like men's football. It was exciting and brilliant. And then they revealed at the end, this is women's football. So I thought that was super clever yeah, was to clever. use graphics like that. It was that really, to clever. Do it, so. really clever.
1: Really clever. It's only when I watched it the second time round I realized they did have different legs. There was, di- there was something in the legs. They weren't as hairy. And then yeah. that, was the, that was the giveaway. <laughs>
0: Well, when my daughter played they she started really young, and they were all different- all the girls looked different and then, but by the end, they all had the same legs. They had the exact- <laughs> the same fut- footballer's legs, yeah. It was absolutely classic. So, who um, is our guest today? T- uh, let's talk about our guest today. Let's um, let's get stuck into that. So, this is Bernadette Welsh. She is a well. Uh, to be honest with you, Pierre, We she's she's got so many things that she's done in public service uh, in in so many different ways that it's hard to pigeonhole her. Um, But she definitely has some experiences to share. But I love the way that she. She's conscious of what she's done and she's able to share that with the rest of us and sort of interpret what she's done in some way. So it's a fascinating conversation. Let's go and hear from Bernadette now.
2: And
1: a big welcome to you, Bernadette. Welcome to We Not Me.
2: Thank you very much. It's an absolute delight to be invited to come and speak to you today.
1: Well, we are delighted too. And I'm even more delighted because you are a fellow burring bar neighborhood person so we are probably only at this point recording uh, less than a kilometer
0: apart i think yeah it's a, it's been amazing actually how we've found this that uh, even our, in our little communities we find these gems so um welcome welcome bernadette as one of our one of our gems to the show
2: Thank you. I love being
1: called a gem. A gem. Well, enjoyed. Uh, you are a gem. You're actually a gem. And, uh, but, but we put all gems into the torture chamber with Dan Hammond for a, for a couple of quick cards. So I'll hand him, hand, him, yeah, or hand her, hand, hand you over to him.
0: <laughs> so what are, what are people in Burringbar Court? Are you bit Burringbarians or is there? I don't know what, what we are. You, you probably need something. Okay. So I'm selecting a card at random, Bernadette. Um, I felt really valued when... When have you felt really valued, Bernadette?
2: I felt really valued the first time my daughter called me and asked me if I could help review a grant proposal that she was doing and give her some advice on how to prepare for this job. I really loved the fact that... um, my daughters see me not just as a mother, but also as a mentor.
1: Yeah, that's that's amazing. Not quite sure helping with homework quite on my side quite <laughs> lives up to that. At this point.
0: It, it reminds me of that old joke where when I, when um when I was fifteen, I thought my parents knew nothing, and when I was tw- by the time I was twenty, I was amazed how much they'd learnt in five years. It, it's a little bit like <laughs> that with children, isn't it? That's
2: exactly the transition I saw happen <laughs> with mine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That is lovely and uh, wonderful that we look to our children sometimes for that ultimate validation. It's so true, isn't it? They, they, it um, is,
2: and I find that I learn a lot from my children as well now.
1: Circle of learning. But tell us tell us a bit about you, Bernadette. So give us a little bit of an insight into who you are and how you've become who you are.
2: Um, I'm retired now, but I had a long career as a public servant, both in Australia and in Fiji. I used to be uh, married to a military man. So even in years that I wasn't working, I uh, lived in all different parts of the world. I've had one of these really varied uh, backgrounds because I spent eight years out of the workforce. And uh, a lot of people get a bit concerned if they have to take time out of the workforce, you know, take maternity leave or whatever, they think that it's going to have a long-term impact on their career and I always say to them, look, I took eight years out and I ended up being a CEO of an organisation with 6,000 staff so, you know, I think you should take time out when you feel it's necessary for you, if it's something you want to do for your family or for your well-being or for whatever reason, So I've had these gaps in my career as well and uh, I was a senior executive for uh, 11 of those years that I was a public servant and four of those years I was a chief executive as well. Uh, Now I mainly spend my time diving, I'm a certified rescue diver and uh, I go on a lot of dive (laughs) expeditions I do a little bit of consulting work as well.
1: <laughs> Not while you're diving. <laughs> <laughs> no. So um, seawater diving or cave diving?
2: I have done a long tunnel cave, I guess you can call it, at Southwest Rocks. And I've done some wrecks, but mainly coral reefs. Well, you have
1: my admiration because I'm, I'm slightly claustrophobic, so I always feel a little bit worried about doing doing that, so...
2: Yeah, diving's a very hard thing for someone with claustrophobia to do.
1: But amazing. And so you, you've been involved in a number of really complex projects. So to take us into your worlds.
2: Well, I firstly, I ended up in Fiji because I had decided once my youngest daughter left home that I was going to give away all my possessions and go and move overseas without a plan. And uh, while I was... While I was there, I was contacted by, I was in the US, while I was there, I was contacted by an Australian headhunter who was um, looking to fill the role of the Permanent Secretary for Civil Service in Fiji. And I thought, well, that sounds great. I'll apply for that. And I got it. And while I was in that role, I ended up organising the largest international meeting that Fiji had ever hosted. And then after I had been in that role for a few years, I moved over to be the Permanent Secretary for Health. And while I was in that role, the global COVID pandemic started. So I then found myself responsible for coordinating Fiji's initial COVID response. Now, the way I initiated that was I reached out to the World Health Organization and we dealt very closely with them. So I uh, I set up the uh, health building to be able to run the whole national coordination project from the top floor of that building. My office was there, my minister's office was there, and the prime minister and cabinet used to come in to us to get briefed rather than us having to go to them. And we had a national coordination centre where I would go in to be briefed every morning. We had the military there and the police. I had a a doctor running the day-to-day coordination and it was very, very uh, well-structured and it was very collaborative because when you're operating in a national crisis like that, it's extraordinary how... People will drop everything to come together to help. I was really blown away by the level of engagement that I had from everyone from the Prime minister down. It was just incredible. I
1: do want to go back to that little comment that you said that you were about to give up all your all your possessions and just just before we go on to that what <laughs> why
2: <laughs> why did you want to do that? Um, I wanted to live overseas again and I'd been a single mother for a while, I'd had a job that was intense. I was the head of operations for Australia's G20 presidency and I'd been working very long hours for several years. And um, I just wanted to take some time out without the burden of possessions. So I sold my house, but everything else I owned, I gave away, my car, my furniture, everything. And I got on a plane and I ended up in LA of all places. It was an adventure, um, but I was completely unburdened by anything. You know, people tried to convince me to keep my house and rent it out, and I said, I don't want the worry. You know, I just want to be free of all of that. Uh, but I only ended up doing that for five months. After five months, I was in Fiji running the civil service, so <laughs> that just showed <laughs> how the universe conspires to, you know, place you where you're supposed to be.
0: And you clearly have an adventurous spirit, Bernadette. So many of the things you've said already say that. And if we come to your come back to your life in these big office you you know, the the G twenty job, the Fiji job, they in themselves sound like putting it nicely, adventurous or at least highly challenging. And and I'm thinking particularly about the number of stakeholders involved in those roles seems to stand out to me as a huge challenge. was is that, is, is that right? And, in, in, and how was that actually managing to sort of sit in the middle of this stakeholder web?
2: It, it is challenging because um, everybody wants to speak to the person at the top. So one of the things that's really important uh, when coordinating something like this uh, with the G20, uh, with the COVID response, with the Asian Development Bank annual meeting that I did in uh, Fiji as well, is to make sure that everybody's on the same page and they know absolutely what needs to be delivered. Um, Once you have that unity of purpose, it's much easier to manage the stakeholder group because you can always bring them back to remind them what you're there for. Because everybody has their own thing that they're concerned about. And as I said, everybody wants to talk to the person at the top And um, I would make sure that I had official spokespeople who weren't me, who I would send out to speak to the media, to, you know, go on the radio and that kind of thing. And I also made sure that we had a uh, structured and coordinated process for communication. Because you can get so caught up in stakeholder management that you can't do anything else. And it is very difficult, especially in an environment like that, in a small country where everybody knows who the Permanent Secretary is and everybody wants access to you to help manage their expectations about what's possible. I, I don't have any problem with reminding people of what we're there to achieve and how my time needs to be spent on other aspects other than managing all of the stakeholder expectations. Um, you have to be willing to do that.
0: Can we just sort of pause on that for a minute? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in this situation. In fact, we see them where they're leading teams or organisations and they have their own function, they have their own role, they play a coach and they're embattled really. Their time is, sometimes appears not to be their own even. So Talk a bit more about, could you, Bernadette, where did you, how did you actually work on that to create that space for yourself when you had so many calls on your time?
2: Uh, I made sure that I had a really well-structured uh, system for managing the entire project. Even with something like COVID, where it was a, an unfolding crisis and we didn't know what we were dealing with, right? I still made sure that at the beginning we took the time to structure our response effectively so that all of the different stakeholders had an opportunity to come together and give feedback and be heard and then go off and do what they needed to do and report back. For the G20, we had to be a lot more formal in our structure. I mean, I signed... 330 contracts during the G20 and I was coordinating three levels of government and the governance committee that we had at the top of that had like 10 departmental secretaries. So I had a lot of, you know, stakeholders there and, of course, the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office. I like to make sure at the beginning of one of these projects that I have a uh, very well-structured governance framework and coordination and communication framework. It really, really helps. I can't emphasise that enough, actually. Um, And it's really important for your own team as well to have uh, ways of communicating with them regularly and making sure that you're not holding on to information but you're actually pushing it out as quickly as you can. So then people are empowered, they're knowledgeable and they're empowered and they can go and do what they need to do.
0: Did you get pushback on that though? Did you have people saying, actually, I don't want that governance framework, I want to speak directly to you, I don't want to speak to that person or wait for that information?
2: Are you a mind reader or something? (laughs) (laughs) Because, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, with one, I'm not going to mention which one, but with one of these big projects I did, I spent a whole year convincing my senior executive staff that they needed to operate within the um, governance and program management framework that we had set up because then I could be confident in delegating all of my authority. But until I had that visibility over what was happening and I could see that this whole program was being properly coordinated and monitored then I, I said I won't delegate to you I will have my eyes on everything myself until you're operating within that framework and in the end because they wanted to be empowered they came along with it and I had uh, I brought in an external person to review how different parts of the project was going and to give feedback to my boss and I used to brief her and and say, these are the questions you should ask, you know. So I used a whole lot of different ways of making sure that people came on board with the, the, the governance and the systems and the frameworks and everything that we had set up. With something that, that is that complex, you can't just... Say, oh, you're an experienced person. Go off and do your part, because there are so many interdependencies, and if you're not uh, monitoring the interdependencies, you'll have someone over here thinking that they can deliver their bit in September, when somebody over in the other direction needs that bit by July in order for them to do what they need to do. You know, and that's so. This is how you manage complexity, and. It goes against the grain for a lot of people because they want to just hit the ground running and they think that you're holding them up. But in the end, the only way that you're going to deliver best practice and excellence is by having structure if you're looking at delivering a complex project. Now, with um, with the COVID response, it wasn't as formalised, but we still had some We still had some planning and we had uh, an operations centre and they were doing a daily report. We were reporting to Cabinet uh, and they had a daily meeting of all of the um, representatives of the different organisations. So we had that first thing in the morning, everyone would report back and then everyone would go off and do what they needed to do. Um, And I had put together a secretaries group, so I met regularly with the departmental secretaries to talk to them about how things were going and what we needed and uh, whether I was having any problems. It's, I found it's really important when you've got people who provided you with resources, if you're having any problems uh, getting what you need out of a particular organisation, I have no qualms in picking the phone up and getting it sorted out. If the nation is relying on you to deliver something, um, you can't pussyfoot around. You can try once if it's if you're not getting what you need, then you've just got to find ways of um going directly to the person that can make things happen. And was there any cultural
1: pushback, particularly in Fiji? Was there a cultural being an Australian based in Fiji, was there any any pushback in that respect?
2: Uh yeah, but I was employed by a government that wanted to do a global search to find the best people for the job. You know, they had decided to spill and advertise all of their permanent secretary roles and they brought in an international headhunter to uh, find people both from Fiji and globally. And when you've got the support of the the prime minister and the government ministers, then um, uh, you're more likely to get the support of your staff and your colleagues as well. By the time we had the COVID challenge, I had been there for four years and I uh, knew my colleagues very well. I'd been the Permanent Secretary for Civil Service and they stepped up incredibly well. I mean, I was astounded at how giving and open everyone was to basically giving me their best staff and every resource I asked for. They were incredible um, you know it was it was one, it was a, one of the greatest privileges of my life to be given that responsibility
0: in setting up these governance structures how, on the other, how, on the other side, how did you balance that with sort of autonomy and the ability to for people to think for themselves, go out and do their jobs you know without sort of rattling everything up the chain how How did you strike that balance?
2: I think it's really important that people understand what their authority is and where decisions are made. That needs to be laid out very early in the piece so that people can get on with their job. And while it's really important to have planning and monitoring, it's also really important to empower people to get the job done. And one of the things that I've found really helps in these situations is ensuring that you have done everything you possibly can to give people all of the tools that they need to get their job done. I've seen uh, situations where people are expected to do the work based on their knowledge, you know, incredibly smart people and heroic effort where there's there isn't value put on the other things that people need, and that goes to systems as well as um, equipment and assets and budget and human resources and all of that kind of thing and technical capability etc I mean you need to understand right at the start what your Ability to access resources is, and based on the resources that you can get, that will determine what's possible for you to deliver. Uh, And you know, I've found on a number of occasions I've walked into jobs where senior people have been used to coming in and making a call and saying, I want this done and I want it immediately. And I walked into once an organization where everyone was just running around responding to demands of senior people. And so I um, I put together a consultative group from across the department. I asked these senior people to nominate their representatives and I said, we are going to determine what the priorities are for this organisation. It was corporate services in a big government department. And um, after those priorities were agreed by the executive board, whenever we got one of those calls, I would say, which one of these priorities that you've all agreed on would you like me to move in order for me to do this very important thing you've asked me to do immediately? You've, you've got to find strategies to help you to help your people to get the job done. And one of the strategies that I had to develop was how to sort of push the noise away from them. And help them to do their job while I sort of stood up to all of this, all of these demands that were coming in and gave pushback in a gentle kind of way. You know, I got feedback that she's so professional. I really like the way corporate services is being run now. But, you know, that was because I was managing them. I think if you're in a leadership role, it's incredibly important to make sure that your team isn't feeling the heat that's coming down at you as, as much as possible. You've got to absorb, you have to be resilient and you have to absorb that heat as much as you can. And you've got to be really strategic, You know, respectful, but very professional in the way you deal with it. And nine times out of 10, you can turn what was a problem into an opportunity. The way you deal with these situations, you can find ways to impress people with your professionalism and your structured way of doing things and your consultation and your stakeholder management, and you can end up fixing the situation for everybody. Every situation is different, but there's a way of dealing with, I've had to deal with these things with you know, senior ministers and uh, and others as well, and there are ways that you can give people what they want by convincing them that there's a better way of going about this.
1: And then the cream on top is that it's their idea.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> and they've, they've been very clever coming up with a great idea. Um, what did you find your most challenging moment, Bernadette, you know, in, across these complex? What what
2: did you find was sometimes the the, the biggest barrier? For me, I've found the biggest barrier has been um, people. Sometimes it's people that work for me. Um, This was a point that I wanted to make as well. Sometimes you'll have uh, a member of your team who's just either a square peg in a round hole or worse, uh, is not treating everyone with respect and is really... um, impacting the well-being of the team and it's really important that you find a square hole for your square peg or you move them on because it can be incredibly destructive to allow someone to remain in a team where they're really damaging team well-being you know for whatever reason and that this is another um, job of the leader you have to deal with these things you can't I see so many situations where people avoid having to deal with this but all they're doing is by not dealing with it themselves they're making their team deal with it and that's unfair you're you know if you're the leader you have to deal with it Uh, and also uh, having working for people who are problematic my attitude is that if the person I'm working for is not giving me what I need in order for me to be able to do my job effectively, I will tell them. And I've never had a situation where they haven't appreciated being told. You know, taking on some of these roles means taking a risk. These roles that I've had have all been very high risk. I, I love that. And if you want to succeed and you want to grow, then stretch yourself and take on higher and higher risk roles. Um, but part of that risk taking is also being willing to engage in difficult conversations at all levels of an organization when you need to
1: and I think some I think it's such a good point because I think people sometimes shy away from that so they sometimes expect those conversations to be had by others and not to take that that accountability themselves so so we would have lots of people who are Leading teams, leading organisations, leading businesses. What, what would be a takeout then from your experiences that you'd be passing on?
2: Well, my first and most important takeout is to make sure that you have that unity of purpose, that everybody understands why you're there and you've got buy into that because it's very easy for things to go off the rails if you don't have a unity of purpose. And you really need to have clarity. And as a leader, I think you should always be as authentic as you possibly can. Be open and honest with people and authentic because people appreciate that. And it really helps create a respectful and open culture because you want people to be honest with you. You want people to tell you if there's a problem. This is another thing with bringing teams together to deliver on the difficult stuff. If they don't feel safe to be able to tell you that something's going wrong, then you'll find out when it's too late. Uh, So if you are open with people and you invite them to be open with you, you invite them to give you feedback and have the hard conversations with you, then they will do the same thing when they're having an issue, even if it's their fault, you know. They need to understand that uh, everybody makes mistakes. That's how we learn, right? How do we learn to walk? We fall over and we get back up and then we fall over again.
0: Everything we've heard today from you, you really take responsibility for your role. You protect your people, you're out there building these governance systems, making sure things work in a certain way. There's a lot on your shoulders in that role. And when you, when you do all those things, how do you maintain your energy?
2: I really thrive in those situations. But also, I have always been very good at building a community. I've worked in all different locations, in different agencies, in different countries, and um, I make sure that early on I find my people. This isn't just in the local community but also in the workplace and I try and do things for people just because, especially at work, I find that's really important. If you do things for people because you see somebody needs something done and you know that you can help them, then you find that that comes back. I don't do it so it comes back but it comes back. It comes back with your friends. The support that I had with COVID, I had people dropping off homemade meals to me and that kind of thing because they knew how hard I was working. And and that really helps to feed the soul, you know, when you've got that level of support. And I've got
1: one final question. What next?
2: You said you like taking more and more risks.
1: So, <laughs> so are the bags packed? Which, which, which you know, Which city are you going to now? What What's next on the...
2: <laughs> I'm going to Galapagos <laughs> in, uh, in October, November. I'll be away for four weeks diving uh, and I'm going to the Ecuadorian Amazon. So there's that. But also I'm starting to look at sitting on boards. I, I feel like I have a lot to offer. I was on Australian Seabird and Turtle Rescue for a while and I was on the Commonwealth Association of Public Administration board and I'm thinking that uh, I've I've done 250 dives in the last three years. So now I probably want to put some time back to giving back to organisations. So I think that that's probably uh, something that will be next for me on the cards as well. Great. Maybe Commonwealth Games if it moves out of Melbourne to the Gold
1: Coast? <laughs> Oh, she's got a head in her hands. Yeah. She has, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the podcast couldn't quite transmit that body language there.
2: Actually, there was there were thirty there was about thirty seconds when I saw the head of the Commonwealth Games, uh, not the head of the Commonwealth Games. It was the I think it was the one that's happening on the Gold Coast in Brisbane, and I thought, oh, I could apply for that. And then I thought, no, what are you thinking? <laughs> what
1: are you thinking? <laughs> three years, three years to get that up and running. You never know. Someone may come knocking on your door. She lives in (laughs) Bar.
2: No comment. (laughs) No, look, I used to work in climate change and I'm really interested in working in something to do with climate action. I have um, been approached to give a bit of advice on Australia's COP presidency and that really interests me. I think it's a really important issue and that's the sort of thing that I think that my skill is best suited to
1: brilliant well it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you bernadette and what an incredible just such a a wealth of experience that you've just articulated actually quite simply so i really feel that our listeners will be able to pick some pick some gems out of this and really apply it so thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your stories on We're Not Me With Us.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.
0: Well, as I was listening to uh, to Bernadette, my, the, the, my three C's dashboard was flashing away because I mean, she is a full three C's leader and definitely a focus on clarity, you know, that unity of purpose and spend a lot of time in climate as well. You know, I love the way that she talks about the governance processes of, communication, but also the resources. Just yeah, just a really a holistic view of her responsibility as a leader. She's put herself into high risk,
1: <laughs> complex situations and thought about almost like the cascading governance required to deliver. So I think she you know, I thought it was great how she talked about you can give people tasks, but they will go off in different directions. So it's it's Seeing that as quite a systemic view of how you harness the power of a collective, but you have to set that up and so there are ways to do things and there are expectations and blah blah and when and when that is well understood you know that the the capacity to be able to work within that system, which you know when you're dealing with hundreds of people i mean I think she talked about you know she was delivering $330 million worth of projects when she was Head of Operations. It's complex. So she's created that system. And when people are in in that position where they've understood it and can deliver against it, then they're
0: empowered. They can work. Yeah, exactly. Within those boundaries. And I, I think this is, this is interesting because it sort of touches on some of the things we talked about with Tom around self-management. But You know, when you've got an organization, a large structure and loads of stakeholders in particular, but in any organization, even in our organization, we have a, you know, we have an overarching roadmap. We have ways of working with teams, but how would they interrelate? We sort of, there is a role for the leader to actually create that framework, those guardrails to say, this is how we're working together. And I remember ages ago, we met that Spotify coach in new york and he talked about those sort of tribes and the way that they the way the way they did have those structures and those guardrails just light enough but within that structure then there's loads of autonomy
1: the discipline of the process creates freedom of choice it's actually a military perspective which is quite interesting another big sort of organizational and
0: she'd been married to a soldier so maybe this is
1: (laughs) yeah yeah Before giving it all away and getting on a flight to LA, um, you know, which I thought was, was, was wonderful. Um, I really like to focus on psych safety and she talked about, you know, if people don't feel safe to tell you it's, it's going to be too late before you find out. So it's in your best interests and it's in everyone else's best interest to have that, that climate. And, um. Yeah, I think I might have mentioned that before. There is there is a stat somewhere around how most generals are shot in the back. So it, it's um, it's important. It's important to be able to create that create that climate that people feel that they are able to express concern and and maybe even
0: challenge something that you're doing. Ideally, yeah, yeah, definitely. The bit that I really wanted to explore with you Pierre, was that idea of she said she'd protect her team from all the sort of the stuff coming down on them from outside. And um, I certainly did that in one of my roles, a couple of my roles. And um, I think I'm in two minds about that, to be honest, is how, you know, people who sometimes unflatteringly call that being the shit umbrella, not being shit umbrella, but being the (laughs) umbrella for to, but maybe we call it a firewall or, a you know, no, not being a rubbish umbrella, but actually protecting people um, from the things that are raining down on them from global or regional, wherever it comes from. My, reflection having done that was i realized that there's a dark side to that as well which is that sometimes one thing is your team then doesn't really understand the full context and they're seeing everything translated through you and that's not that great but also it's sort of didn't i realize i wasn't preparing people for that next role someone's going to step up or into that then they didn't really know what they're stepping into so i think i feel there might be some sort of balance i don't know what your thoughts are on that i think that just to say, Bernadette takes her took her responsibility very seriously, and I think that she put a lot into that. But I just had that question mark having 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 done done that myself. Whether that's something that needs to be held in balance,
1: I think sometimes organisations kind of encourage us to do that. That again, it's a slight test of rank status and. Hierarchy, you know what, what, what can you hold? now, to be fair, and we're working with a number of organizations where decisions have been made and they can't be communicated, so you just can't. you just can't, because that's the nature of the way that that that's happening. It's a good question to ask yourself, what are you actually trying to achieve by doing that? And if that is because the very nature of the information is not going to help them not going to help the people that you lead and maybe a huge distraction. You know, I was working with the leader. I was talking to them last week and a whole pile of things happened and they didn't communicate it to their team. And they said the reason they didn't do it was because they didn't think it, you know, I wasn't entirely sure that that would have been useful. And in actual fact, all of the decisions changed. So it would have been an almighty distraction to communicate different directions, whereas in actual fact they were waiting to let's curate curate get to the get to the right outcome now that's communicated so i think I think that depends, and I think the final litmus check check is am I doing this to fulfill my own needs in some way is there is there an ego element to this, and I think that's a you know
0: it's just. It's a possible question. It's possible. It's possible. I I would say also though, it it certainly didn't feed my ego. It was the most miserable part. That was the job I did was just protected people from ridiculous requests from regional office, you know. So, um, but yeah, I think you're right. It it can be a sort of, that's a danger. I'll, I'll deal with the, I'll deal with the big big boys and girls in global or whatever whereas and that, that would be a that would definitely be a, a sort of warning sign wouldn't it it's an interesting one i'll be um i think it's just food for thought as with so many of these things something just to be conscious of and hold hold in balance definitely not and um and bernadette wow she took her responsibility seriously and I her about her energy how she maintained her energy because that bombardment can be quite quite draining but she had a lovely answer to that which she actually thrived on it and she sees herself in the in a community she 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 really enjoyed the sort of the energy that she gained from being part of that um part of the organization part of the community which is uh, just i think that's just so shows someone who's a natural leader because she's being n- nourished by it absolutely um it's inspiring actually but that is it. For this episode, you can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the we, Mo- we Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the love and recommend it to your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to the show, just email us at we not me pod at gmail.com. We Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.